out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Cork bass band. It is five go down to the sea because I very recently spoke to Ricky Deneen to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Ricky's going to tell us everything now. Ricky, it's over to you. Um, I, I tried to document just a few times what, what actually changed. I mean, originally in the earlier 70s, it was into deep purple and status quo and all those kind of, you know, those average kind of bands that we were all into when we were younger. Of course, when punk rock came, came along, uh, John Peel would have been the changing moment, really. And I, the, the particular song that I remember was um, Orphans, Lydia Lunch. Oh, okay. Uh, I heard it one night and I said, wow, that's absolutely superb stuff. I mean, like, you know, I kind of changed the kind of musical direction and, and kind of the way I thought about music. Yes, and absolutely. I, I had I had starting started to play a bit of guitar at that stage, yes. but uh, that that really pushed me off into a different direction. Yeah. So, did you have a bit of a musical household? Was there kind of music in the house at all? No, no, not really. No, no. There, there is my my sister was a great singer in any kind of a pub sense. Right. You know, that she could she could roll out a carpenter's tune and do it very well, but. Basically, we were just kind of an ordinary working class family with no musical abilities at all. And still yes. to this day, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But then, yeah. But was there a bit of a musical, you know, community around court that you, you started to gravitate towards, apart from your interest in, in heavy rock? Yeah. They, no, there wasn't at the time. It was kind of, Cork was very kind of laid back kind of music at that time. Uh, I, I suppose things started filter through. There was like these kind of um, kind of rhythm and blues punky bands starting to, co- to come through. Uh, I suppose we we were kind of uh, I, I won't say we were the pioneers of, of the Cork scene, but uh, you know we were kind of one of the first kind of like let's say new wave bands to come out. We were yeah. a, a few a few years after the kind of the the. 1977 uh, British scene, you know, it was around 1978, 79. But before that, I mean, Cork was a very kind of a laid back, rhythm, bluesy, rocky kind of a place. Yes. Well, you, you had know. Rory Gallagher, didn't you, from, from Cork? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big debate about that among some of my friends in the last few days. Like that it's, I mean, you could be you could be sentenced to death for saying anything bad about Rory Gallagher and Cork. No, like, you know what I mean? I'm Rory Gallagher is an icon of Cork music. Yes. It's just the kind of, the actual music itself. And I can understand where people are coming from. The actual music myself didn't, didn't do much for us. Or gang, to be honest with you. It was just blues. Yes. And very well played blues and very technically brilliant, but, you know, didn't do anything for us. No, that's fair enough. But then you also had people like Micro Disney and those guys, which was sort of quite amazing. And there was another band, I don't know if they were from Cork, called the Woodbees. Or would be I kind of would be I think no, I think they're yeah, they're not from Cork definitely, but I'm aware of them. They actually 
Yeah, I saw them play there two or three years ago. I think they're still around. Still, still yeah, playing. I think they did their bit so, in the 80s, got on John Peel a few times and then split up and then came back about five years ago and did a, a new single or possibly album. And um, yes, probably disappeared again, actually. So then yeah, with, yeah. Sort of, with the, the kind of... So obviously, heavy rock with status quo and deep purple. Did Black Sabbath come into your consciousness at all at this stage? Yeah, Black Sabbath were one of the one of the bands that I used to listen to before before punk rock. B B P R. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Black Sabbath, I would have listened to them as well. But I didn't. Yes. Uh, I don't think I I, I I didn't take any influences from them at all. Yeah, absolutely. Then, then as as punk sort of hit in about seventy five, seventy six, was that a kind of a, a whole changing point? Were you were you somebody? Because when I I grew up in sort of the countryside in East Anglia, and it was very working class. It was either sport and football, and actually there wasn't much else. We didn't really get into you know there wasn't mm. a called community, but was there a bit more of a sense of a, a sort of musical community in your area? Uh, at the time, no, but it did kind of transpire after the kind of few bands, like you say, Michael Disney and a few bands started coming through, like our own band. And it was this kind of little indie, indie kind of a scene. I suppose that started around 1989, 2000, uh, or 1989, nine, no, where, where am I getting my dates from? 1979, 80. Yes. Yeah, because uh, it, like there was this, it, what we were very lucky with is that there was a huge venue in Cork called downtown campus it was run by UCC uh, someone called Elvira Butler and it was yeah. a regular Saturday gig which would normally you know it'd be about 1,000 1,500 people at the gig no matter who was playing so what used to happen that the big acts used to go over from the UK and us lot then got to support them you know, so it, it kind of developed an audience for us here in Cork, and then, and then eventually we, we ended up headlining the place. So you know, it was a grand, it was a grand scene that time. We were privileged to have it. But can you imagine like being being like seventeen, eighteen, and punk band that's only been you know playing for six months, and next you're on a stage in front of a thousand people, you know, and that was a fairly regular thing. Yeah, on Saturday well, that... nights. Well, I sort of speaking to quite a lot of bands and, and and getting live dates under your belt is kind of essential. I even did an interview with a guy, the guitarist with um, Twisted Sister, who said that they they sort of started in 72 and sort of played, you know, literally thousands of gigs throughout the 70s because they couldn't get a record deal until the 80s. But it kind of made them incredibly good when they did sort of when things did tick, but playing live was kind of essential. So um, it is, and, and there was another band called The Senseless Things in the late eighties, and they used to phone up the promoters and say, we'd love to come and support anybody you've got just so we can basically get in free. That was, <laughs> but also yeah. to, to, to learn how to do the, you know, to, to, you know, do the gig really. And it was like an apprenticeship, let's face it. That was the main thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when did, and when did your, you know, band first start to sort of, galvanize itself and sort of develop and and did you have a band before that or was this was the first one no uh, yeah well the, we started off around uh, 1978 and it kind of you know as we got a little bit better it, when we got the opportunity to play in the, the, the downtown campus in Cork that's what started it off for us so like we're talking about 79 and then in 1980 they made um the promoter made a re- record of four of the bands that were playing in uh, downtown campus. It was our first time going on vinyl as well in 1980. And it was kind of, uh, Michael Disney were on that as well. And uh, it, 
it just it, you know it just kicked things off for us anyway and it, it it kind of that kind of just having a record under your belt then was even though it was a compilation record it wasn't all all of our own band but we were able to get gigs up and down up down yeah. Ireland anyway and so did you kind of open the doors for us which is essential did John Peel pick pick up on the band at all was that was he was he a champion of, of the band or did I did that... I think I, I think John was afraid of us a bit <laughs> <laughs> right. I think so yeah I don't know I and mean, we never got a session from a minute because everybody else got a session at that time Everyone I remember could... uh yeah yeah we, we were kind of when we went to London or we went to England first we were living in Brighton for a while and uh Donnelly decided to ring uh, John Peel <laughs> and funny enough he got through to him and he spoke to him on the phone. He said, oh, you have to give us a session. Oh, no problem. But I, I was just amazed that you could get through, yes. you know, bring up the BBC and get through uh, to a kind of a, a BBC One DJ uh, just by talking. You know, it was he actually spoke to him on the phone, which was fantastic. Yes. We still never got a session, though. <laughs> such a shame such a shame because it's kind of yeah i know a lot of people i've spoke to you know they either had to i mean he must have felt like he had lots of weird stalkers actually at that stage because people were just going to yeah. around to try and give him a disc or a, or mostly a cassette of some description to say could you play this and put it on the show tonight and i remember billy bragg saying that he once bought him a sort of a, an indian meal because john said it's on the radio god i'm really i'd love to have some indian meal tonight and billy bragg heard it and went and bought it <laughs> And was there, and he even ate it. He didn't think it was going to be poisoned because a paranoid person <laughs> like me would be like, God, this weird fan has just kind of given me random food. Mm, I'll eat it later, Billy. So anyway, I, I, that's, I, that's, that's what we should have done. We should have sent him Chinese or an Indian or something like that. We'd have, yes, we'd have got on it. Have gone. But we did do a few sessions in Ireland before we went over. There was like the equivalent of uh, John Peel's Day Fanning in Ireland. And we did a few sessions for him as well, which was good. Yeah, but um, yeah, but we never. Sorry, we didn't get to John P. He did play our records quite a bit, but, but no session, I'm afraid. Well, at least you got played. <laughs> in in a way, have, you know, I realised there were during that period there were kind of these gatekeepers, weren't there? We had three weekly music papers, which is you know had phenomenal circulation, and people in America, Huge, yeah, 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 you know, people in America often said, you know, we just had monthlies, where you had weeklies, so you had all those live dates that people needed to write about, you know, singles reviews, you know, stuff like that. Plus, you had John Peel. You know, Kid Jensen, Janice Long, people, you know, who were not just regional, but so national and international. So it did help bands get to the next stage. And I think that that kind of progression is essential. Otherwise, if you're still playing in front of your, you know, family, friends and anybody you can blackmail to see you, you know, you're going to get yeah. for a couple of years, aren't you? So then you were in sure. Ireland, in Cork, and you were sort of developing the band. What did you, did it feel incredibly exciting? Because it, you know, the sound that you captured, you know, was quite, raw and rocking and um yeah quite quite you know like captain beefhearts meets the mekons or something like that uh, you know there, yeah there was there was quite an energy to the group wasn't there yeah i mean it, it, the energy would have been kind of generated by donnelly as you wish you know donnelly was just kind of unique kind of a front man and totally insane and i think he generated he dragged us all along with him as we were playing live over here but i don't i don't know people whatever whatever people made of us over here they didn't know what to make of us when we went to the uk <laughs> but it was fun though it was fun but i mean we were very young i mean you know 17 18 like snelly the drummer was only 16 when we were we appeared on uh, national tv <laughs> one right. day, 16 years of age 
so it was great. It was great fun, and we were and what, swept and along what was, by the whole I mean, of it. And what was Donnelly like? I mean, when you first met him, what was he like then? Because he must have been quite young, or what, did you even meet him when he was at primary yeah. school? Well, he 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 yeah. He kind of they, they they moved from Belfast. They had to move out of Belfast because you know the troubles were on, and they were I think they were a Catholic family in the wrong area or something like that. But they moved down to Cork. But Donnelly, when I met him first, was very unassuming and quiet. <laughs> Right. As soon as uh, as soon as you get to know him, uh, yeah, he could be quite kind of like a very very funny guy, very intelligent guy, but could be quite intimidating. But, yes, you know, yeah, yeah, he was intimidating to the outsider. If you looked at him, and, uh, yeah. but um, he was a gentle old soul, really. You know, <laughs> but he's but he's to frighten people and get his own way and things like that, like. Yeah, because I don't know exactly the timeline, but I know from that 80s period, we had people like Bogshed, Big Flame, Stump, you know, some quite sort of out, out there sort of um, bands, because you know, it was the punk period. And then you had this post-punk period with, you know, people like Magazine and Gang of Four and Public Image. And then sort of the, the world of, I put, you know, indie rock. This is one of my theories. I mean, it's not watertight, but, you know, there was 83, the Smiths came along and there was this suddenly like, okay, there's a thing which is kind of a vibe of, you know, not just a record label about being indie, but, you know, it's definitely a, sort of for five years, the Smiths and that kind of vibe certainly had an effect. I know you had things like New Paisley and you had Psychobilly and you had Goth, but, you know, there was, there was sort of, you know, the 80s now. I mean, even then it seemed very exciting, but obviously with nostalgia, we all look back on it now, don't we, with great fondness. So did you feel you were kind of at the right place at the right time with, with your band who were coming along? Yeah, I think we kind of did enough. We, I mean, the first band over here was called None Attacks. That was kind of a very, very punky band. And, um, you know, we, we, we finished that off and then we started a band called Five Get Out to the Sea with a cello player over here, which was kind of strange. We had a cello player instead of a bass. But, yeah, it worked out fairly well. So we didn't know, when we moved to England in 83, we left the cello player behind. And we really didn't know what to expect. We didn't really, we didn't know that there was a kind of a scene for that kind of oddball-y type music already over there, you know? Yeah. And it took, it, it took us a while to kind of get into it and start getting gigs. I mean, I think it was um, the Polly in Woolwich started giving us gigs. Is it the Thames Polytech in Woolwich? Right, I can't okay. know what it's called. And uh, we started gigging regular there. and. That sort of kicked it off, and then I was looking at there is a compilation from from that, and list the bands that play there. Like they were all kind of like Nightingales and you know Mekons, of course, and it was all kind of bands that were kind of kind of going along the same path as ourselves. Yeah, like the Mekons had had done it a good few years earlier, obviously. Like, but uh, you know, I mean, that was a great place to play, but it was all these. Looking back at, at the names of the bands, though, you can see a lot of familiar kind of, um, you know, from that that era of time. Bogshit yeah. as well. Like, I mean, Jesus, I mean, coke are not like Bogshit. <laughs> and we did, have, we did kind of have a few nights together. Like, I think they stayed with us once or twice and they were loony bins. They were fantastic. We got on great with them. Well, absolutely. Band. Yes, I know. They, they, they did. They were quite good. <laughs> but then, I mean, because I, you know, had have done interviews with, you know, various Australian bands and bands from New Zealand who, you know, again, relocated from the other side of the world and came to London to sort of seek their fame and fortune or at least sort of be, 
you know, just getting bored of their hometown. I mean, it seems like a really big gig to do this in the 80s. So did it feel like trying to convince a, not just one person, but a band to say, look, I know I've got a great idea, stick with it. We're just all going to go to London with no money. I mean, did, that seems like quite a big adventure to do. It was uh, probably uh, during the midst of the, one of the worst recessions ever, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was fairly depressed here in Cork, but it was actually quite depressed in London as well when we went over there. And, you know, we were living on the dole and trying to survive. It was, it was tough. The first, first, first year was tough, definitely. Yeah. But it was Did a you tough time to go away. the same away. kind of squat or the same house? Yeah, to... we all squat again. But first of all, as I mentioned, we moved. I have a brother living in Brighton. So we kind of imposed ourselves on him. He must have been so couple happy. Of... <laughs> He's delighted. I actually only went over there. I went over to London in August and I went to visit him. And I said, it's OK, I'll be gone in a few days. But like we were there for months. Yeah, and then we band. moved up to London. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, when we moved to London, it was it, like, it's not like now, you know, you carry your contact uh, completely. My mother used to send me over to the, the newspapers weekly, like, so I could catch up on the news from home and all that kind of stuff. Like, yes, it wasn't quite like, you know, you've got a WhatsApp, though. You know what happened? You know, whereas those days, you might, you might hear anything for a week or two. It was, it was tough. I know you just there was no no communication at all. Then nothing at all. But you got you got yourself on the record label quite quickly. Abstract Sounds, didn't you? Nineteen yeah, or a fine year for music. So you obviously going over. Did you take your equipment and and start sort of rehearsing? You didn't just go okay. Let's just I don't know sign on the doll, do some labouring jobs, and then forget about the music. You kept focus on being in the band. Yeah, I mean we didn't do kind of the. Doing little bits of work didn't happen <laughs> towards the end of our uh, of our stay over there. At the start, we were fairly concentrated on on trying. We'd list the numbers, we were ringing people up and getting ignored and things. But we did bring our instruments over us. We used to practice in the squat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there was no there was nobody to complain. <laughs> yeah, and and um, in eighty four, I do remember vaguely eighty four. I mean, we just had the sort of. Um, the Falkland War, then we had Greenham Common, then we had the sort of the minor strike. But I know from from sort of, you know, my history and also do, you know, <laughs> the famous book by Neil Taylor, C86 and all that in difficult times. Um, you know, you had things like, you know, Alan McGee's The, the Living Room and that kind of scene and, ba- and bands like the Jesus and Mary Chain happening. So you've, you got sort of started to get sort of support gigs with people like that, didn't you? We did actually. Jesus Mary Shane supported us. <laughs> oh, there you go. They supported us. Yeah, and they, I think it was their first gig in London. And uh, yeah, they, they, <laughs> that's our only claim to fame, really. But you could you could see that when they came into the room, they kind of you know it was a different kind of an audience for them as well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Andy Alan McGee, I think we played in the living room a few times, which was quite nice. That was a great venue as well. I must, you know, and we did record, I think, the creation as well. Yes. Which so, so was that when, or because you did one, was it an EP on Abstract Sounds? Yeah, we did uh, an EP for Abstract called The Glee Club. That's and it. it was grand. It was uh, engineered by John Langford or the Meekins. Oh, the three Johns. The good old John yeah, Langford. Yeah. And did yeah, you, was, yeah. I mean, with Abstract Sounds, that's quite a small label, isn't it? The, um, I mean, they hadn't sort of, yeah, I was just looking at who else is on it, actually. 
That's very small label. Yeah. So how did you become aware of them or how did they become aware of you? This is Edward Christie. Edward, yeah, and it's Jeanette uh, Gartwaite, um, who she was a kind of A&R person. And I, I think uh, so she called to us after a gig and said, we're trying to go up and talk to us about making a record. Simple as that it was quite, quite easy, actually. And easier you, than I expected. Did you sign a publishing deal as well at that stage? Were you kind of... I can't remember, to be honest with you. I know we were, I think, as far as I remember, uh, the old brain is going a bit, but I think we had published it with Cherry Red. I think. Yeah. I can't remember. But we we kind of only did one single anyway for Abstract. Yes. And and then the following year. So who who approached you from creation for um sign you for a but did they just want a single? Did they did they want a single or were they kind of interested in an album with you? No, no, I don't think they were interested in anything. <laughs> I mean, we met up, I mean, we had met Alan McGee a few times in the living room when we did gigs there. And then we met him up with regards to doing the single. And um, he he kind of was enthusiastic about it, but it was only going to be a single. But I don't think I see. I, I saw him anymore after that. <laughs> I don't even think I saw him in the recording studio. I didn't hear from him the more. They just kind of, the single kind of fell out. <laughs> rather than released, if you know what I mean. It was just kind of, I don't think, I don't think they liked it or I wasn't right. too happy with her either. That didn't quite happen then. So then sort of as the mid eighties, how was the band kind of developing its kind of style and, and sort of, you know, recording and, you know, just keeping it together? Because with, with the, doing this show, most bands have a kind of interest in five year narrative of, you know, the 18 months or 12 months honeymoon phase and then a single, then a possibly an album and if you're lucky, two albums. So what was it, you know, how was the band coping, you know, from, from 85? Um, yeah, well, the, the only, we were, because we were kind of self-taught, we, we were kind of starting to get tighter as a band as well. We were starting to kind of, you know, get a bit better and, um, you know, things were coming together. We were actually offered an album deal from Cherry Red, if I remember correctly. They offered us three albums or something like that. And I suppose probably foolish. No, we turned it down. There was no money involved or anything, but if we were saying, you know, that, that, that means we'd be tied to them for three years. And three years when you're in your 20s, your early 20s, it seemed like an eternity. So we actually turned them down. But uh, <laughs> we were, yeah, <laughs> sorry, no, no, just wait for the next guy to come along, yeah, which nobody did. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we were just kind of at home writing away, writing away. And I think, um, we, like when we finished with Abstract, I don't think there was any talk of another single with Abstract. We we came, uh, Alan McGee offered us to do us one, and then when he was when we were finished with him, Keith Cullen came to us from Satanta Records and asked us to do one with him. Right. So it just kind of developed along like that. Even though uh, 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 Five Down to the Sea had finished by the time uh, Satanta Records had come along. Yes. Our, one, one of the stack went to America, one of our uh, guitarists. So we got a, a, a new bass player and a drummer. Right. So we, 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 we kind of reformed as Beethoven. It was called Fuck Me, Fuck Beethoven. Right. <laughs> we had to drop the first part. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonder the Boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, the last band was called Beethoven, and we recorded that for Satanta. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's as interesting. Like, 
we're always tipping away. Like we were, we were always kind of writing bits and pieces. That, you know, we've often, we often kind of went through kind of two or three songs that we kind of rehearsed and never played. You know, that sort of malarkey. Yes. So things were things were always developing. And did you feel? I mean, did it seem inevitable that the the five go down to the sea? Was that just kind of you know, when you split, did did you sort of all shrug your shoulders and think, yeah, that was just never going to quite click? Even though, you know, you've got quite a you know, good compilation on Spotify with this material and it sounds fantastic. D- did it feel kind of disappointing when when it just wasn't going to ha- quite happen? Yeah, it did. Yeah, we, we were kind of, you know, we're going to throw a hat out it then and we moved kind of from, uh, we were in South East London in Rotherhite. We moved up to Shepherd's Bush. And we were there for a while. And then Morris, another guy that we were squatting up there, was a bass player. So he wanted to start playing again. So we, we eventually got started up slowly, but surely got back up and running again. And then Daniel Strittmatter, our Swedish drummer, came back to us again. And yeah, that, that started the last chapter of it. Yes, that's the... that's the, But you and Donnelly, were you the kind of driving force of both... The, the first band and also Beethoven? We would have been, yeah. I would have been kind of, yeah. I, I The kind of songwriting team, as it were. But I suppose there was a period in Five Go Down to See where we had a cello player and we had Mick Sack as well. They contributed an awful lot towards it musically. But, but, but with the other bands, it was kind of mainly me and Donnelly that were kind of driving it. Yes. Blimey. You know, it's, so we were there from the start. Yeah, it's to amazing. To the bitter end. The, the bitter end. Always there. But the press that you started to get with Beethoven was fantastic, wasn't it? There was a lot of interest, including people like Stephen Wells and David Stubbs as well from The Melody Maker. So you, you did this feel like, okay, you know, we've, we've had our apprenticeship with the first band, but this one is definitely going to start to, um, yeah, come together a bit it, better. It's, it's actually... It's actually around that time that we kind of started to think, you know, you know, we, we better start thinking, t- taking this a bit more seriously, you know, and we were starting to plan ahead and, you know, but I, I yeah, I was I'm fairly optimistic around that time. To be honest yes. with you, but it all grown to a halt, as as you know. Yeah, no, it's happened. Well, that was, I mean, were you as characters? I mean, as your guitar playing, was that kind of changing quite a lot during that period? Um, yeah, I was just I was just getting slightly better. That's all. That's all because <laughs> I started off as, you know, I never, I never, I never took any lessons or I could be bothered anyway. But it's just that I just started getting a bit better. That's all. Yes. I, you know. I mean, it's but still, like... I mean, I, I mean, I'm like, I, I, I kind of still playing today the way I kind of I am playing today is kind of similar to what way I was playing in the eighties. Because I didn't do anything in between, as far as that way. So I so, still have the 80s thought process in my head, yeah, songs together. And before, I mean, because it was a horrendous kind of um, moment, did, did you sort of, at that stage, was there still sort of plans to keep, you know, Beethoven? Was it still kind of, I just wonder how, you know, things were sort of looking for the band and the individuals within it, and whether it was kind of, yeah, sort of the passion and, and the sort of drive to keep going was still there. You you mean after the no before you know up to, oh, to before when, it oh, yeah 
Oh, no, as I said before, it, it was just full of enthusiasm. Like we were starting to play, actually plan ahead and start to, you know, start to think like a real band, you know, whereas we're just pissing around, you know, <laughs> give a shit really. Like we, we said, come on, we're getting a little bit older here now. We managed to start, you know, start taking this seriously. And that was starting to happen. Yeah. You know, even Don, Donnelly was actually planning lyrics rather than just coming up with them at the time. You know, he was actually he was starting to think about it more. And was he, you know, were you seeing him develop as an artist and as sort of a songwriter within, you know, that period of time that you you first knew him to sort of, you know, in Beethoven? Because there's, you know, a lot of, you know, great songwriters, you know, you sort of see their, their, their lyrics and you start thinking, you know, like Shane McGowan and people like that. And even Dear Old Morrissey in the early years, I mean, they, there were some sort of fantastic lines that they sort of developed and Nick Cave and such like. Mm. Did you sort of see a sort of, not a genius, but somebody who was, had a real talent there developing? I, yeah, I, his, his voice definitely improved um, over the years. Uh, he definitely got better and I, I think he would have got a lot better than that, you know, if he, if he had lived. But... Yeah, I, it's only it's only when we started we started doing when we started when we revived the band for Donnelly's anniversaries over here, we started doing a gig on his I think it was twenty fifth or twentieth anniversary, and it was when we were trying to teach other vocalists to sing like Donnelly, you know his yes. timing and all his kind of thing. But that's when we started to realize, you know, Jesus, he had a talent, all right, you know. He, you know, come in in the middle of a phrase of a song, like, and he, he just he, he just had a kind of natural instinct for singing and a natural timing as well. And he had great pitch as well. Everything's, you know, but I only started appreciating that in the last few, few years. I didn't appreciate the time. Yes. And obviously, great front people have got something quite unique about them. And you can see, you know, when you sort of catch yourself watching YouTube clips of various singers, you know, there are just some that glow. And I guess, did Don Lee have that kind of, you know, ability, you know, like a Michael Stipe character or Morrissey character or, you know, Mick Jagger to sort of take it that bit further? Yeah, he had a, but he, it was kind of unpredictable as well, <laughs> you know, do you know what he might do? And, you know, it kind of came down before the gigs and, you know, don't drink too much and or I'd have to calm myself down as well before the gigs, you know, but he could dive into the audience or kind of run into a world famous. He, he ran into in, ran into the toilet during a song up on stage with a, mic, a radio mic, he was still singing and as, as he was going, you know, stuff like that, you know, he was liable to do anything, but he definitely would grab your attention. You know, yes. you wouldn't you wouldn't kind of sit down muttering during a gig. You'd you'd, you'd be your eyes would be drawn towards suddenly on the stage. Were people you know, were people quite scared, intimidated of the band? I think so. I, I I think so. And there was no reason because it was no absolutely zero violence. I don't think <laughs> it was absolutely useless at, at, at any kind of scrapping situation. Like it was just kind of you know, you just. Yeah, I think I think that was probably what held us back most to people saying, oh, we can't approach them. Like, and you know, we're very nice people. 
Very yeah. nice to you. <laughs> and as the, as the 80s had progressed, did you sort of feel, because there had been, you know, as I sort of mentioned, you know, the Smiths between 83 to 87, there was that real serious scene. And then, you know, the ecstasy world appeared and then there was like the dance scene. But then you had North London, you know, with people like My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers and Carter, the unstoppable sex machine. And then obviously... You had, you know, 4AD with people like the Pixies and Throw Muses and then Seattle's, you know, grunge scene. Did did any of that kind of, you know, affect what you were planning to do as a band, you know, as, as you saw, you know, these changes that happened within the kind of so-called indie world? Well, yeah, I, I mean, they, they all, most of those hadn't happened in 1989 when, you know, we were, were just planning ahead. But, um, I, I wouldn't... I, like after 1989, when I used in 1989, that's the year that Donnelly died. After kind of 1989, I just pulled back and I didn't kind of listen to anything yes. for nearly 10 years, 10, 12 years. But regards planning uh, ahead, like I think we were, uh, I think Keith Cullen was getting getting in somebody from the Flying Lizards, I think, um, to produce our next thing I, I, maybe i don't know whether that's good idea or bad that would be going down the comic right kind of parody kind of a role but you know all these things were being talked about no i didn't know it at the time it's i don't know did you look um at you know paul mcdermott's oral history of the band it's no. online it's it's quite good it's and he he like he tells me a lot more stuff about my past and he knows a lot more stuff about my past than i do myself <laughs> is he on there to that now but the 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 somebody from the flying lizards um good uh, to produce our next uh single but uh yeah i suppose we just take it as it came you know we'd have to you know have to weigh that up if that had been offered at the time and donnelly had lived and we'd have said okay <laughs> yes so. but then yeah that's quite true and for people who don't know that you know i don't you know obviously i don't want it to be horrible but he he actually and he dies in a really sad um, way everything's kind of sad but you know a drowning accident in hyde park doesn't he which is kind of Brings everything to a sort of um, a crashing into to the yeah band. yeah yeah. So um, yes, that must have been one of the most hideous and surreal days of your life, really. That that kind it of it was you know. horrible. And actually, I, I I went to visit the, the um, in August, just last August. I went to the Serpentine just to go back to the place where it happened. And it's first time I was first time being back here in thirty three years, and it was just strange feeling. I said, Jesus, this is where all our lives changed. This yeah. spot here, this and, uh, is where it happened. But it was just kind of, you know, I, I, I actually, I remember when we were going into the park that day, Donnelly was kind of going on about the next single and trying to think of ideas and all that sort of thing. So he was still full of enthusiasm going yes. in there. Well, just I guess being, being only 27, it was, you know, still, you, you have that youthful energy and you have the physicality, don't you, to... Things aren't yeah. starting to um, sort of creep too much, actually, do they? So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So then when, when that happened, what did you then do, you know, I, you know, you sort of did just mention that you, you didn't sort of listen to music with the band for 10 years. Did you uh, stop playing yeah. yourself in that period? I did, yeah. I kind of, uh, there was no point because, uh, I mean, I, the only thing I, uh, since I started playing the guitar, the only one I could kind of, 
work with was Donnelly because he's, he was there at the start. Yes. And I couldn't imagine kind of looking for someone else and finding a new band and, you know, and all that sort of thing. So we decided to move back to Ireland. Yeah. And that was, that was it for practically most of the 90s. Didn't do anything. Did a bit yeah. of work, drinking, drugs, everything, you know, kind of a lost decade, as we say, like, so. Yes. Yeah, it was it was a long time, and I, I hardly listened to music. I mean, I've kind of, I don't know, um, did, did Nirvana play in Cork that time? <laughs> the famous, they, they played in Cork, and just three hundred thousand people were at it, and I don't even remember that they actually played. You know, it's the kind of the music scene just kind of left me behind yes. in the nineties when I was back here. I'm so, not surprised. Yeah. It's quite hideous, isn't it, really? And then, mm. and then after the, the millennium, did you then sort of start to get your life back together again, you know, in certain a way? Yeah, I, I, that's funny. It just only came up the other day. What happened was there was, um, uh, at, they, were, they were doing a play, uh, Pat Kiernan and a Cork Durka theatre company in Cork. Uh, they were doing a play and they wanted a band to play as a part of the live thing it's kind of set cork in the 80s so basically we were playing ourselves <laughs> so I, I i got a band together and played in that and that kind of got the interest going again like the play ran for you know two or three weeks and it was just great to go in there and you know drummer bass and we even got a cello player for for, for the play so that rekindled my interest in um in in playing again Yes. And then uh, what happened after that, then was what I mentioned was, was Don, the anniversary of Donnelly's death. I, I arranged a gig whereby we'd play, you know, um, the Nut Attacks, Five Good Uncle to See hits <laughs> yes, <laughs> for his anniversary. And the first one, we actually had Mick Lynch from Stump, who, who, who sang with us. Amazing. So he actually, he actually did the first gig. He was actually playing Donnelly. <laughs> Blimey. And how did the two people, how did the two frontmen compare to each other? Because they're quite extreme, aren't they? Yeah, and they're they're great. I mean, they were two good friends as well. You know, before we before we went over, uh, we, we, we were in Cork. Before we went to London, um, uh, Donnelly and Mick were great friends, and they were very very funny together as well. Very good friends, like and very funny guys. I would imagine it was, bounce, bouncing off each other. I would imagine it was a very busy kind of evening. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with sure it. Sure was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God. And then after, because that was, um, was that 2000 and what was it? Tw- that that was like 2009 you did that uh, concert for Tribute. Yeah. And then after that, did you, have you tried to, you know, like, get the band some not recognition but sort of archiving the material and making sure that the legacy has kind of been preserved yeah i i i did it i kind of got it uh, most of the tracks together myself and uh, actually a guy from cherry red came on to us and said they were interested in putting it out and i said okay fine so um I don't know. I went out for it went out for a year or two, and there was nothing happening. And I, I, I know that I sent him the tracks that I had. They weren't mastered or anything. They're all in varying different types of condition. But they, uh, somebody on told me, hey, 
Grade five, you don't have to see stuff was up on Spotify. <laughs> I said, what? He said, well, yeah, it's up on Spotify. And I looked and it was, it was on iTunes, it was everywhere. And I said, how, how, does this, how does this have to happening? But apparently, I don't know how it happened, but when I sent stuff over for review to Cherry Red, they just put it online without any kind of thing. So I, I got on to them and said, take it all down. And eventually we got a record company over here in Dublin called All City Records. Right. And they said they, they, they'll actually put her out properly. <laughs> Thank God for that. Jeez, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, they did. I mean, I, I must say it was very unprofessional. They, they just kind of didn't ask, they didn't master it. They didn't, you know, didn't ask me anything about it. Just put out what I sent them over. So yeah, all, all city came on on board here, and like they were, they did it they did the professional way. They did it proper mastering, proper track selection, proper cover designs, and final release and everything. And it, lo and behold, it came out right in the middle of lockdown last year, <laughs> <laughs> hiding from the landlord. Yes, that's that, it. I can retire now. I go away now. I said, <laughs> "Well, that must be quite nice because you've got all you've got these twenty-four tracks, and you've got the you know your your first band as well as Beethoven as well. So it's it's a good com- compilation of everything that you've done yourself." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. It was just a period that came up, came out right in the middle of everything. You know, nobody was out. Nobody was like it was supposed to come out on record company day like. Uh, last year, our record shop days, it's whatever it's called, anyway. Yes, and uh, that was cancelled because of the um, pandemic, and then it, it came out. I can't remember when it came out, but it just came out without any fanfare. Well, I didn't want yes. it to be fanfares, but uh, yeah, I didn't. It just kind of came out, but it's all well. I, I'm told. Yes, but it's I'm... great to have it out there. Well, it is. And there's a lot of kind of these, you know, there's like Jerry Rev Records, who's obviously not, not going to be your best friends anymore. But no, <laughs> there's optic, there's like optic nerve and Clybury and fire, fire records in Germany with UV. So there's a lot of people who, you know, who are just in love with, you know, obscure bands from sort of probably 30, 40 years ago who are putting stuff out and doing vinyl releases as well. And I think fans from all over the world start sort of, you know, both old fans as well as new people discovering stuff you know do like to track stuff down and and sort of get very curious I would imagine you know with word of mouth and social media people will sort of discover the band and the work of yourself and Donnelly and and the other members quite well so it's good it's it's there (laughs) and yeah I'm I'm sure because it's you know quite a story and and you have you do have a lot of amazingly dedicated fans as well don't you who champion the band up from other bands as well as john rob frankly if you haven't got john rob champion mm. something yeah <laughs> that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah, there's a few of them out there yes so it's 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 amazing it, it, it's good i mean if you could have said something like to your 16 18 year old self starting out in music is there anything any little well wise words of advice or just sort of direction or is something that you would have just whispered in their ear I, I, I yeah I'd probably be very sensible and say like I, I, but then again I, I'm delighted the way it turned out obviously without the ending of it with Donnelly and things like that but the actual way it happened but if I was by my own curmudgeonly self I'd say like you know Maybe, maybe try to take it a little bit more seriously, and uh, you know, some, maybe take that tree uh, album thing from Cherry Red, you know, you know, maybe see how that goes. 
you know, it's just that we were just so flipping to give a shite, to be honest with you. We just <laughs> played, got drunk, had a crack, and, you know, you know, I mean, you know, we, we didn't, like, Donnelly used to spit cider into journalists' faces and things like that, you know. You're, you're supposed to be impressing these guys, you know. But I yeah. didn't, didn't see it. the guy that came over from uh, Songs, I think. I can't remember his name. <laughs> blowing, taking a sup of Bulmer cider, blowing her into his face. Yeah. But he only laughed at it. Like, but uh, maybe I would have discouraged Donnelly from kind of assaulting journalists and things like that and photographers. <laughs> maybe we would have got further. Yeah. Maybe we wouldn't have been in Hyde Park that day. It's a, you know, maybe we'd have got a session off with John Peel. Maybe I don't know. I know it's just yeah. I mean, it it obviously takes a long time to sort of uh, to process those experiences and to try and move on with a positive, yes, a positive outlook the, in life. Like rock and rock and roll and punk rock was all supposed to be not compromising and things like that. And kind of that's what we did, but it got us nowhere. Yes, this is true. <laughs> and you. You did say, I, I couldn't remember, you, when you were talking about the Flying Lizards, who did you say was going to produce your Paul, Mc, did you say Paul McDermott or Paul? No, Paul McDermott is, does, does the oral history that you have to look up. He's done one on Micro Disney, he's done one on Stump, he's done oh. one on uh, a, 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 quite a few bands, so he's very, very, very good archivist from Cork and, uh, you know, he, and does a radio documentary as well. Right, I've got you, and that's, you know. was that what happened with also... In 2020, you had a mural on the uh, Cork's Grand Parade as well. Uh, but that was only last year, actually. It was, um, this is true. I know it feels like a long yeah, time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> it was the anniversary, remember, uh, the, the cut of the campus, the actual, uh, the, the, the original EP that came out with the four bands on it. It was the 40th anniversary of that. Oh, yes. So we got a mural. On the side of a toilet in the Grand Parade. We like, yeah. In Something's Cork. stylish, isn't it? It looks great, actually. It looks fantastic, but it's just you say, Jesus, you know. Did my dead thing to do with those 40 years, go, oh, they put murals up. Here we go. I <laughs> <laughs> finally made it. This is all good. Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. Check out Paul McDermott's kind of archive as well. That'll be quite interesting to see what um what other bands and other stuff he's done but um yeah no it's they're always a good read really good even if you're even if you have no interest in the band it's always good read we love we people of a certain age and probably gender just love you know music documentaries is what we live for isn't isn't it really i mean when you when you listen to the band now what tracks in particular do you think yeah that was that was the one that we really nailed it. Was there anything in particular that you're proudest of? There's a, there, there's only a few, well, I suppose overall of, of the, the, the records, probably the Glee Club. But yeah, because I, I just enjoyed recording it, I enjoyed making it, and I enjoyed the tracks in it as well. Uh, yes. I, like the creation thing was a bit of a mess, I thought, completely. Beethoven was too bad either. But, you know, some, some of the tracks, I mean, I, I think one of my favourite tracks uh, didn't make the album. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> where was that? Where was it? Where's the, the track sitting or, or living? Um, I think I think it's up online somewhere. Oh, I is think it? It's called, yeah. Well, well, I, well, it's probably one of the ones I used to enjoy playing the most. It's called Kelly, Kelly from Killeen's. <laughs> Right. 
I just enjoy playing it. But if you go back to the records, I'd say the Glee Club would be probably my favourite of what we recorded. Yes. Yeah, so. interesting. I mean, did you, I mean, working in the studio, was that kind of an exciting experience for the band? I just wondered if, if you know, you, they managed to capture the sound that you were looking for. Yeah, I, I, again, the Glee Club, I think, captured it, the, the kind of chaotic kind of a sound. Uh, we, we recorded in Ireland before we went over. We recorded our first EP in Ireland, in, in the middle of nowhere, out in the countryside. And it kind of, yeah, it, that's, that's the one that has a cello with it. It's, it's, a, it's a lot more musical, actually. But I think the Glee Club is a bit more kind of, you know, a bit more chaotic -y. Kind of, uh, kind of, a, go towards the song that we want, want it yes. really. I know. Well, thanks to John Langford. Like, I know we love John Langford, don't we? Yes. Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, there's, yeah. Not, there's nothing like a cello player. And what happened? Did you do you sort of keep in touch with the the band at all? You know, the ex, um, old members, the you know other members. Yeah, of... yeah. Um, actually, the the guy, the original band, Smelly, the drummer, he's actually started to play again. So I started to jam away with him. Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, yeah, I do stack. Do I do Una, the cellist? I talk to her every so often, get the odd Facebook message. Uh, Daniel Stripmatter, I'm after kind of losing touch with a bit because he's in London. Uh, yeah, well, most of them, yeah. I, 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 the ones that are still alive, let's put it that way. We are, unfortunately, you might be aware that the, the bass player with Beethoven passed away as well, Morris. Oh, Morris Carlton. So, yeah, Morris character, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I, as I kind of mentioned elsewhere, kind of his his death was kind of kind of an indirect result of Donnelly's death. Because, you know, he he kind of had a bit of a you know drug habit, let's put it that way. Right. And when he was playing when he was playing with us, it was fine. There was no nothing being taken, a few drinks. But I think when we split away, when we went back to Ireland, I think Morris probably just slipped into his old ways. Yes. You know, and I think it was a bit an overdose killed him in the end, like so kind of a double double whammy from Donnelly's death. Oh yes, no, that's never Which, good. Yeah. It's yeah, a tricky yeah, number, yeah. isn't it, really? And it is, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, your cello player, how do you pronounce their name? Oh no, I'm asking the wrong person here now. Unikiani. If she hears this, she 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 uh, correct me as well. But uh, Una, Una was fluent fluent Irish speaker, like in Ireland, like we we all learn Irish in school, but we never learn it very well, you know. It's, uh, she, I mean, she she was brought up in a house speaking Irish, so she she'd be fluent. Much to our shame, to be honest, we can't speak our own language. Yeah, yeah. Only need canning. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I would. It's I can, canning. Canning would be the English translation. Probably best just to say Una, really, isn't it? And just <laughs> that, as if you're on first name, because she was on the album "Not Not a Fish," spelt with a K. That was the very first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and that was produced by John Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no. There's John as a guy I haven't seen in years. I don't know where he is. Yeah. But he was. Uh, yeah. He was a musician around the town. But yeah, Una was um, she like when she was playing with the RT concert orchestra or something like that. RT, which is the national broadcaster here, 
So obviously she wasn't going to come to London with us no. <laughs> to live in a squad. <laughs> did she? Did she so, go on to sort of stay in music and classical music, or did she? Oh, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She she plays regular and she plays. I think you know. I think I see her doing stuff with Gavin Friday. She did some stuff with Cal Collin. Um, it, you know, she did a few kind of. Uh, independent stuff as well outside of the orchestra business fantastic as far as i remember yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's just yes so so talented these people aren't they yeah oh yes yeah. my oh, god she's what she's worked with so many people hasn't she yeah yeah yes okay yeah she's <laughs> she she has a life in music but look this has yeah. been thank you ricky for this this has been amazing and if you want i can always send you the link and then you can put it on your you know uh, facebook page yeah because um yeah it's just great to hear the band and and hear some of the news and um yeah i i can't i can't leave it because liam was going to kill me is <laughs> the, the band that i mean no we're, right. we're actually a band going going now at the moment called big boy foolish well we're, we're we're trying to have a band because liam lives 150 kilometers away but we're you know we, we, we put out four singles in the last year so you know we're we put out the single again in December, so hopefully that'll lead to live gigs and stuff like that. We have played a few live gigs, but everything's broken down, as you might imagine. But yes, that's that's what I'll be doing into my sixties. It's got to be Liam, Liam, Liam Herfinan, yeah. So we, who's so, Big Boy Foolish? Big Boy and, Foolish, yeah. And what's the and who who do you play with, by the way? Uh, well, it's, it's just what, what started was the, the band that we did to did through the uh, Donnelly Night tribute night. Yeah, and Liam was the, the other guitarist. He he played on Cotter the Campus as well. Like he's an old punk rocker, a good friend of Mick Lynch's as well. Right. But uh, yeah, but we we kind of when we finished that doing Donnelly gig, we started writing our own, and we, Liam didn't want to sing, so we auditioned loads of singers. Nobody wanted to do it. <laughs> yes. So so Liam ended up singing. So basically, now we are a two-piece. So when we play live, we have bass and drums, backing track, and the two of us playing guitars live on stage, and Liam singing. It's not bad. It's good. Post well, no, it's, it's got to be done. Post-punk, post, post, 80s post-punk in 2020. So there you yeah. go. Well, to be honest, I sort of realised with the lockdown and then, you know, we were like coming out of lockdown and going back. Anybody who could be very nimble with the um, solo, a, a solo artist suddenly became very popular because you could just... Yeah. They could get on stage, do their thing, social distance on their own. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so a two-piece. And also you don't... I mean, the more members, the more... I mean, it's fun when you're young, but, you know, there's just so many... It's a big marriage, isn't it? Well, yeah, we, we, we can travel to gigs now, just the two of us in one car, you know. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just fantastic. And yes. uh, and it's easy to set up as well. You Much know, we easier. just set up, plug into the PA and we're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> if, there's anybody, if there's any Irish people there that want to give us a gig in there in the next couple of months or so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I'll keep yeah. that in there. But that's brilliant. Well, thank you, Ricky. This has been fantastic. No problem. And have a great no evening problem. and all the best. And I'll keep in touch anyway, yep. or vice versa. But th- all right, David. Thanks a lot. Well, Long
Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the <laughs> end of the interview. I think that's pretty obvious. Anyway, a massive uh, thank you to Ricky Deneen for giving me that uh, time for that um, particular. Yes, his his time for the interview. Massively appreciate it. That was about five. Go down to the sea. Um, I do believe they, there is a page on Facebook that you could join and then find out more information, etc., etc. Anyway, if you want to contact me at the C eighty six show, you can. Um, just go to, I don't know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You will find it. Uh, keep it positive. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So that's um, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>